Well, it really is a delight to be able to be back with you all again today. Um, I always enjoy the times I'm able to come back and worship with you all and share a little bit more from the Gospel of John. Uh, It's always such a blessing for me to be able to study these texts and to be able to preach on them. It really is a delight for me and to fellowship with you all as well. Uh, If you remember the last time I was here, we spent the morning message talking about the verses surrounding John 3.16, and then in the evening service we worked our way through the end of John chapter 3, so that means we get to go into John chapter 4 today and talk about uh, Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And I think as we understand what Jesus is telling this woman, and as we understand the context in in which he's telling her these things, we too should feel some of the same emotions that the woman at the well feels, and as we'll see tonight, some of the emotions that the disciples felt as well. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and look at our passage. We're going to be mainly focusing on John 4, 4 through 18, but I'll go ahead and read uh, all of the first 18 verses of John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus answered her, or said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this text. We're grateful that you have given us living water uh, through your Son. We're grateful for the just the benevolence of that provision for us. And God, I ask as we go through this text today that you would challenge all of our hearts to treasure your precious gift of living water and to forsake all else in the pursuit of being satisfied by you in your living water. We thank you for this text. We ask that you would just open it up for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a moment and just position ourselves back in the context of John chapter 4. We know that Jesus' ministry has become to pick up a little bit of steam. We know that what happened in John chapter 2 with the events of cleansing the temple, followed by many healings there in Jerusalem, attracted quite the crowd. 
But we know that these people in Jerusalem were not true followers. The end of John chapter 2 tells us that they were uh, false in their belief, that Jesus did not believe in them. And then we know after this, Jesus had his encounter with Nicodemus there at the beginning of John chapter 3. And after this, he and his disciples went into the countryside around Jerusalem, where as we read at the beginning of our um, chapter today, that Jesus' disciples were making and baptizing disciples. And this ministry of Jesus' disciples was attracting the attention, the unwanted attention of the Pharisees. And we'll get to Jesus' head-to-head encounter with the Pharisees in future chapters, but for the time being, Jesus was not going to confront them as of yet. And so he and his disciples left the area around Jerusalem and were headed back up towards Galilee. And that's where we pick up our text today. I think our text has one main point, and that is that Christ is living water. You could sum it up in just, just saying that, but I would go further to say that Christ is living water that is meant to satisfy the deepest longings in the hearts of people from every walk of life. I think we're going to see that laid out for us beautifully throughout this text. And we're going to start to see that there in verse 4, where it says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, a lot of commentators like to make a lot of this phrase and say that Jesus was doing something uncommon by even passing through Samaria. That a good Jew would go east over the Jordan River through the country of the Gentiles, and then back into Galilee, completely avoiding the country of Samaria altogether. And it's certainly possible that some people did that. However, there really isn't textual warrant to say that that's what's happening here. It's likely, in fact, that most Jews who lived in Galilee and went to Jerusalem would have passed through Samaria both ways. So I don't think we can make a lot of, uh, too much out of that phrase, but I think it is fair to say that Jesus had a divine appointment with this woman. When we studied John chapter 1, we saw how when Jesus called his disciples, he was going places with a purpose, going to meet the people that God arranged for him to meet. Jesus lived his life and conducted his ministry in perfect submission to the will of God the Father as communicated through him through the Holy Spirit. And we see Jesus in perfect submission going through Samaria to this particular location to meet a very particular woman. We're told they arrive outside of the town of Sychar. And again, there's a lot of dispute as to where exactly this town is, which well exactly we're talking about here. But what's important is what it says uh, there in verse 6, that Jacob's well was there. So this is a location that was common and known to both Samaritans and Jews. They shared some kind of ancestral kinship with this particular location, this particular well. And that's going to kind of set things up a little bit further on in the conversation. Some people say that this plot of ground in this well is uh, a reference to Genesis 48.22 or Genesis 49.22. Both of those are blessings that Jacob gave to Joseph. We can't really be sure which it is, but like I said before, the important thing is that this is a shared location that both Jews and Samaritans would have been aware of. And then in verses 5 and 6, I I love the description we see of our Savior. It says he was wearied from his journeys. And it'd be easy to skip over this, but it's really important for what's about to come up. Jesus is going to offer this woman something. And Jesus is going to offer us something. But there's a difference between the way Jesus goes about offering us what we need and what we see like celebrities on TV telling us to do. 
right? Jesus tells this woman exactly what she needs. She needs living water. And we also need the same thing. And the difference between what Jesus says and what a celebrity says is that Jesus actually knows what it's like to be us. That's why I have a very difficult time, like anytime a celebrity comes on TV and says, you know, you need to stop using plastic straws. That's the way you need to live your life. Change everything, throw them all away, no plastic straws from here on out. I'm like, you don't know me. You don't know how often I use plastic straws. Why would I care what you have to say, right? They're speaking into our lives, but they have no context to understand what it's like to be us. And that's a silly example, but they do that all the time. And some people can have a similar mindset when it comes to listening to instruction from Scripture, listening to instruction from God. Why should we listen to what God tells us and how God tells us to live our life? If he does exist, he certainly doesn't know what it's like to be me. That's the mindset. However, texts like this one help us understand that Jesus grasped grasped fully what it was to be human. Not only did he feel the full weight of temptation, he felt the aches and pains, the weariness of being a human. He was wearied from his journey. He needed a drink. And this reminds us that Jesus has a perfect window into our lives. He felt those same emotions. John is also the gospel that tells us that Jesus wept by the grave of Lazarus. And that should be comforting to us. When we read a text where Jesus says, we need living water, we know that Jesus understands our lives, that he can speak into our lives and tell us what we need, fully understanding what it's like to be a human. All right, well, now that we've fully set the scene for our text, let's get into the meat of this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus asks her for a drink there in verse 7. A very common request. It wouldn't be surprising at all. If you were journeying through a a foreign land and you were, as Jesus was, making a longer journey, you would not have materials or equipment to get water out of a well. You would rely on the hospitality of the people in the area you were going. And so Jesus asked this woman for a drink doesn't seem like it should be shocking at all. But we get a hint of of how shocking it was by the woman's response there in verse 9. She says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And so here we have to understand the context of Jewish and Samaritan relationships, right? Um, Samaritans were the descendants of the remnant of Jews who stayed in Israel while the rest of the Jewish nation was exiled to Babylon. And while, during the exile, these remnant of Jews intermarried with the Gentiles that occupied the promised land and made lives and carried on. And when the Jews from Babylon came back, they shunned these people who had intermarried, and they had sinned by doing this, but they completely shunned them from society, would have nothing to do with them, and relegated them to this area in Samaria, and they would have absolutely nothing to do with them. Some versions translate the end of uh, verse 9 as Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. So it went beyond just societal ostracization. It went all the way to not sharing anything with them whatsoever. It would be unthinkable to ask a woman of Samaria to share her water vessel with you. It was unholy, unpure. You could not touch that. It was taboo to even do this. And the woman understands that. She understands that Jesus is a Jew and she is a Samaritan and typically he should have wanted to have nothing to do with her. But this brings us to a beautiful main point of this text. And that is that living water is available to everyone. 
Living water is available to everyone. And if we consider the context of the last few chapters, it really jumps into focus. Throughout chapter 2, Jesus is offering himself to the Jewish people, demonstrating to them that he is their long-awaited Messiah and offering himself to them as payment for their sins. And then in chapter 3, he speaks to the absolute highest level of Jewish society when he's speaking with Nicodemus, the teacher of all Israel, as Jesus calls him. And Jesus' offer to him is the same as his offer to the woman at the well. And that really is a beautiful truth for all of us who would be in the same position as this woman from Samaria. And I think this is where we need to position ourselves as we read this text. We are all most similar to the woman at the well. We would have been on the outside looking in just like she was. And Jesus extends his offer to her. He extends his offer to us as well. And we're going to understand more and more about this woman as we go through the text. And we're going to understand just how much of an outsider she really was. She was an outsider even in her own town. And what's so amazing is that no one, not the woman at the well or you or I, are beneath the ministry of Jesus. And that is amazing news. And I think there's an application for us here as well. If Jesus did not put this woman beneath her, his ministry, it's impossible for anyone to be beneath the ministry of you or I or your church or my church. This is the lesson, one of the lessons that this text should teach us. Jesus reached out to the most desperate, despised, rejected people and offered himself to them. And when God calls us into ministry with people that we would typically say, I'd rather not. Maybe somebody else should do that. If God calls us to minister to those people, we have no right to say no because we are all just like this woman in Samaria, on the outside looking in apart from the grace of God made manifest to us through Jesus. So let's see how Jesus responds to her a little prickly opening to the conversation here. He says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you Living water. So this is a little bit of a cryptic reply. Uh, when we read this, this passage, we understand where Jesus is going to go with this. But to the woman at the well, this is going to come completely out of left field. Like, what in the world is this guy talking about? It's going to sound incredibly arrogant. Like Jesus is just another Jew who's coming through, looking down on everyone. But Jesus is telling her that he can offer her living water. The woman at the well would have only understood living water to mean moving water, like a bubbling spring or a, a stream or something like that. And so this is the well that everybody goes to for water, and here's Jesus saying, I can give you living water. And she's thinking, what in the world? There's no, this is our well. This is where we get our water from. What do you mean, living water? That's impossible. And that explains her response there in verses 11 and 12. She says, you don't have anything to get water with in the first place. So how are you going to get water out of the well? And then she goes on to accuse Jesus of being arrogant. She says, do you think you're better than our father Jacob? Remember, we have the same ancestry here. Your patriarch is the same as my patriarch. Are you saying you're better than Jacob? He dug the well. He gave us this water to drink. He used the water. Are you better than Jacob? All of a sudden, you need to have living water, not just the water from Jacob's well. And it really betrays her ignorance, doesn't it? She has no idea who she's talking to. She has no idea that she's talking to the person who was far before 
Jacob, far before Isaac, far before Abraham, before Adam. She's talking to God Almighty, eternal, the very word of God. So yes, he is greater than your father, Jacob. He is, and that's why he can offer you living water, but she has no clue. And that's where we see another main point of this text, and that is that humanity does not naturally see their need for living water. Just like the woman at the well, just like Nicodemus, you and I are incapable of understanding our need for living water apart from the grace of God revealing it to us. We all live our lives in pursuit of other things. Living water sounds outrageous. It sounds preposterous. It sounds like a fairy tale. Unless God opens our eyes to see that we actually have a need. And so we must be grateful that as Christ did for the woman at the well, he opens our eyes so that we can see that we need his living water in the first place. And now that I have had Danny for, my son for, you know, almost a year, it'll be a year and next month, I kind of have a little bit of a picture of what this is like. It's like when I stick him in the high chair and I'm ready to feed him a meal. And I'm going to start with the healthy stuff first. I'm going to give him his vegetables before he gets to eat his Cheerios. And all he wants to do is get to the Cheerios. And so the whole time he's, you know, disinterested, lollygagging, not really wanting to eat very fast. Sometimes he'll flick them off the tray, especially having watched Roarin' for the last few days. He's getting in a really big habit of flicking them off the tray and watching Roarin' eat it. He has a great time. He has no concept of understanding that, that the vegetables are important for him. He couldn't care less. They're not, not something he values at all because he has no concept of understanding what's actually important for him. That's the parent's job to say, you need to eat this. This is good for you. This will help you grow. And that's kind of what it's like for God and us. He knows exactly what we need. He knows the only thing that we truly need, and he graciously offers it to us, and we slap his hand out of the way every time. That's what we naturally will do because we can't want it on our own. He has to open our eyes, open our hearts to understand the importance and our desperate need for living water. So let's look again at verses 13 and 14, and Jesus is going to make some more cryptic statements to the woman. He starts off in verse 13 saying, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And this is our next main point, and that is that earthly things can never truly satisfy. The things of this earth can never truly satisfy. Jesus is being metaphorical here, and he's making kind of like a no-duh statement, right? The woman, hearing this, I come to this well every single day. You don't think I understand that I'm going to be thirsty again after I take this water home and drink it or use it? Obviously. Obviously. Everybody gets thirsty again. There's, there's no way you could ever take a big enough drink of water that you would never be thirsty again, unless you drowned, I guess. But there's no way. There's no way to consume food, water, anything that you need for your life in such a way that you won't have to come back to it again unless you want to die. But Jesus is using this analogy, this illustration of water, to show what it is to be a human, to pursue after things that you have to go back to over and over and over again. And it's designed to illustrate the human condition. We're doomed to spend our lives in pursuit of things that only satiate but never really satisfy. And that's necessary. So much of our lives are bound up doing activities that equate basically to treading water, right? You go down to the deep end, you keep your arms moving, you keep your legs moving, you keep your head above water, and you survive that way. And that's how we have to live our lives. We have to go to work and 
and earn an income so that we can buy food, pay for a house. We have to fill up our car with gas. Otherwise, we'll break down on the side of the road. We have to eat and drink and do all of these habitual activities just to stay alive because nothing of this earth ultimately can satisfy in an eternal sense. And this illustration would have been especially poignant for a woman living kind of a subsistence lifestyle like she was. She felt very much the struggle of just surviving day after day, of being thirsty day after day after day. And in an affluent culture like we have here in America, we're a little bit removed from what that's like. We don't necessarily understand how difficult it is for some folks to just survive, to just get enough to drink, get enough to eat. But the same could be said of the way that we spend our time. Could it not? If we, even if we don't focus on eating and drinking, we spend our time pursuing other things that we think can satisfy us. Dream vacations, bigger, better houses, nicer, faster cars, bigger TVs, whatever it is, we're like, hey, you know, I'm going to get this thing and that's going to satisfy me. I'm never going to need another car if I can just get this car. But that car is going to break down, that car is going to rust out, and then you're going to have to get another one. That's the way it is. There's nothing that we can go out and get for ourselves that's going to provide an ultimate source of satisfaction. It can't, it can't fill the void the way living water does. And I think we should all be challenged by this passage to consider the shortness, the brevity of our lives, and the amount of times, time we spend pursuing things that satiate but do not satisfy. Because when we consider those things, Christ's offer of living water becomes truly unbelievable. He's offering us something completely different, of a completely separate nature and quality that can provide and give an ultimate eternal satisfaction. And that is uncomparable to anything that exists in this world. And that's exactly our next main point. And that is that living water is eternally satisfying and self-replenishing. Jesus offers a constant supply that will nourish the soul continually. It wells up from within to eternal life. That's what he says in verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What a contrast. What a contrast to everything else this woman has in her life. Not a struggle something that travels with you, that is within you, that provides eternal spiritual satisfaction. And I think there's a few key points to consider here. And that's, first of all, living water is a gift. We've come back to this several times in the previous chapters. It's the same message that J- Jesus gave to Nicodemus in John 3.16. Jesus is God's gift to humanity. In verse 10, he says, if you would have known who you were talking to, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. As I said before, this is not something that we can go find on our own. This is not some secret, mystical, spiritual source of satisfaction that if you just meditate hard enough or do enough good deeds, you can get on your own. This is a gift of God to you that you have only to receive. Secondly, Living water never runs dry. You don't have to come back again and again for a fresh, 
a fresh anointing of spiritual blessing so that you can be good for another few days or a few weeks. It's eternal. Once it's been given, it will not go away. It will not leave you dry. It will travel with you continuously for the rest of your life. It wells up to eternal life. It's an eternal gift. Contrary to anything else that you have in this earth, your living water will go with you into heaven. It will continuously nourish you throughout all of eternity. It's quite an offer. It's a magnificent offer. It's the best offer that this woman could ever have hoped to hear in her entire life. Coming from a Jew, talking to a Samaritan, an outsider, he's offering her eternal spiritual satisfaction. So how does she respond? How does she respond? She says in verse 15, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, there's a couple different ways of reading this. Some folks want to say that this is a genuine request on the part of the woman, that she's curious, that she's intrigued by Jesus' offer, and she genuinely is asking for the living water. Other folks want to say that this is kind of sarcastic and she's still kind of waving Jesus off as some kind of arrogant jerk, right? I tend to think more towards the latter. And she's still not really getting the picture because she says, give me this water so I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's saying, what, are you going to put indoor plumbing in my house? Are you going to give me my own supply of water so that I never have to come here and get water again? She's not quite getting the picture. She's showing, once again, that she is a human, just like all of us, and she does not understand what Jesus is offering to her. And so Jesus, in verses 16 through 18, is going to bring up the most desperate part of her life to highlight her need for living water. What this reminds me of is when my sister, not Esther, who's here, my sister Trina, and I were kids, we would get into arguments all the time. And what we called it was verbal jousting. And the concept is that, as you can picture it in your mind, right? You're charging each other with your insults locked and loaded, and if you hit the other person just right, you'll knock them down, and if you're lucky, they'll be crying for the rest of the day. That was success. Now, being the youngest, I was almost always the one that was crying for the rest of the day, right? I rarely came out on top on those things. And if you want evidence of that, you can go to the Graham's house sometime and they have a video they can show you of that exact thing happening that Steve took many years ago. Anyways, that's what we did. And our goal was to find that most sensitive of all areas in the other person's life and exploit it for maximum emotional damage. That was the whole game. And whenever we would go to our mom after this and she's trying to you know, quiet us down and calm us down and soothe things over, she would say, why do you kids insist on pushing each other's buttons all day long? And you can exactly understand the picture of what she's saying. Because we, we, we knew the sensitive areas of the other person's life, and if we really wanted to get them mad, we'd bring up that particular aspect. And we were doing it out of pure malice and like angst and whatever other, other negative emotions. But Jesus here finds the most sensitive aspect of this woman's life for a loving and kind reason, right? He's going to highlight the area of her life that hurts the most so that she understands that what he has to offer can satisfy that deep, deep need. Jesus says, go 
call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And you can just, you can feel the hurt in that response, knowing what's about to come. This is, this is not a topic you want to talk to her about. And Jesus goes for it. He just jumps right in. He says, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. He lays it all right out there in the open. No secrets. It's the most embarrassing aspect of her life. And he is going to bring it right out in the open. And now we know so much more about her. We know why. It mentions at the beginning of the passage that this is about the sixth hour, not a time that people would typically come to the well. This woman is here alone because she, even as a Samaritan, is a pariah in her own society. She's known for her failures. She's known for the person who is the ex of five different guys and who's now just settled for living with somebody. And that wasn't even acceptable for the Samaritans. She is in a very desperate condition. And if we consider the woman's position in life, her, her need, her lifestyle up to that point makes a lot of sense. Nowadays, it's marriage for a woman is considered something that you can choose to do or not choose to do. You know, if you want to like embrace the patriarchy, I guess you could get married. That's kind of the way people think about it. If you really feel like it, maybe you've lived a good life, had a good career, then you can get married. That's the way a lot of people think about it. That was not the case in these days. If you were a woman and you couldn't get married and your family was unable to care for you, your life would be misery. There was no social programs to help you out. You weren't going to be able to go out and get a job like anybody else. You were just in a tough spot. And so for her, each time that she goes back to the same well of trying to find the right guy, it would be an attempt to satisfy what was a very, very real need for her. She needed a husband. She needed that security and that protection, and yet she gets burned over and over and over and over again. And Jesus is bringing this out so that she can understand the immense capacity of living water to satisfy those needs. The way, the way I like to think about it for this woman is she's been wading out into the middle of a stream and this, this vision, this allure of satisfaction in a good relationship, she always sees it coming down towards her and she wants to grab it and corral it in for herself, but it always slips right through her fingers. There's no way that she can ever actually grab and hang on to that which she values and prizes most highly. She just is continually coming up empty over and over and over again. And we do the same thing, don't we? We live our lives in pursuit of happiness and pleasure from sources that do not hold that. Another way to think about it would be that if, if satisfaction and um, eternal fulfillment is at the bottom of a deep, deep well, and it's water there at the bottom of the well, what we do with our lives is we go collect a bunch of stuff and throw it in the well to try to bring that water up to the surface. And we throw more stuff and more stuff and more stuff and more stuff in there because we're materialistic. That's our culture. That's our society. If you can just amass a big enough pile of stuff and shove it all in the well, you'll get the satisfaction. You'll get the perfect life. It'll rise to the surface if you just buy everything you saw in the Super Bowl commercials. If you can have enough, you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. 
And you know what? You never actually get there. The most wealthy in our society are the most desperate because they can buy everything. They have bought everything, and they still haven't gotten that mystical, eternal satisfaction that's been advertised to them. And just like this woman at the well, all they have left to do is go back again and again and again, hoping for a different result, but doing nothing different. You cannot gain satisfaction by accumulating things of this earth. Dream relationships, dream marriages, having perfect children, none of those things will give you eternal satisfaction, the eternal satisfaction that comes with living water. If you envision your dream life where you have absolutely everything that you want and you take Christ out of the picture, it will not be satisfying. It cannot satisfy because satisfaction is a product, an outcome of living water. And you know, we laugh at our kids when they spend their times doing the same things, right? The, what, what I think about because I guess I don't have an understanding of why it's so attractive, is Pokemon cards. Like, I don't, get, I don't get Pokemon cards. I will never understand it. I was never into it as a kid, so I, I, I don't understand. But you see kids, and they're, they're so engaged in trying to get all like, the best possible cards, right? If you can just assemble the right collection of different characters or whatever, then you're going to have this unbeatable deck of cards that you can just rule the world with or something like that. But what these kids find out is every time you get with that dream card you had, there's another one out there that somebody else has that's even better. And then if you actually collect all the cards, the genius developers of this game are going to come out with another set of characters, and then you have to collect those too. It's never enough. It's never satisfying. And it's funny. We laugh at it. But they learn that behavior from us because we do the same things with more dollar signs, with bigger consequences. It's how we live our life. That's what the American society is. Go collect enough things and you can be happy. But this woman at the well, this encounter that Jesus has with her, shines a light on that mindset and shows how empty it really is, how despair-ridden that kind of a society will ultimately become. And we see it and we feel it every day. Notice how Jesus does not offer her a husband. She doesn't point him in the direction of online dating. She doesn't point him in the direction of, like, the dream guy. She doesn't offer him anything that she wants. He doesn't offer her actual living water. He doesn't offer her a husband or relationship. He doesn't offer to make her the talk of the town in a good way. He simply offers her himself, and that will be enough to satisfy. He basically steps in and says, forget what you think you need. Let me show you what really matters. And that's the key aspect of this conversation. The Holy Spirit has the capacity to open our eyes so that we can see the need that we didn't even know we had. And as the empty well in our soul is filled with living water, the desires for gratification from other sources should be displaced and replaced. So imagine that life that's been filled by shoving all those items inside that imaginary well. When living water enters the picture, it springs up from within, it pushes all that other stuff out of the way, and nourishes us eternally with satisfaction, spiritually. Now we're going to stop here for today, and we'll pick up after verse 18 tonight. But before we close, I want to ask just a few questions that should help us apply this text to our lives today. First of all, 
Are you filled with living water? Or are you, like this woman at the well, spending your life pursuing satisfaction from sources that you know are eternally bankrupt? If you have not, make today the day that you invite Christ as living water into your life. And second of all, to those of us who have found living water, who have accepted Christ's free gift of salvation, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we trying to have it both ways? Are we living our life thinking, you know, I've got the, the spiritual side of my life satisfied, so I'm not going to worry about that anymore. Now if I can just have all the material things along with it, then I'll really be happy. Then I'll have super satisfaction. I'm not saying that having nice stuff is wrong. I like nice stuff too. But if you pursue those things in an attempt to add something extra onto the satisfaction that you have in Christ, it will not work out. There's nothing wrong with having a nice car. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. There's nothing wrong with having material possessions. But if they distract you from the satisfaction you ought to find in Christ, they are a problem. If, if the accumulation of wealth or possessions distracts you from your Savior, your focus is wrong. This text ought to challenge us to confront those distractions with one answer. And that is to say that Christ as living water is sufficient to satisfy all of my deepest needs and longings and to pursue anything else in its place will lead to nothing but emptiness. And if we hold on to that truth and grasp it fervently in our hearts, we can live a life in this materialistic culture of pure joy and satisfaction in Christ regardless of our possessions. Whether we have much or have little, we can be satisfied in Christ's living water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for um, this text and the reminder to us to be satisfied in you as living water. Lord, we're so grateful that you extended yourself to us in this way, that you made yourself available to people who had no worthiness in and of ourselves. You gave yourself to us freely. Lord, we ask that um, this body of believers here, that Cornerstone would be a light of true satisfaction and eternal um, joy and fulfillment to a community that desperately needs to find living water for themselves. We ask that as we go from here today that we would pursue you wholeheartedly as our soul's source of satisfaction, joy, and eternal fulfillment. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.